thank you for ministering to us the Word of God that is the builder of our faith. And Lord, I ask you to illuminate our minds tonight. Renew our minds. Renew our hearts. Let us see what is the width, the height, the depth of the love of God, the wisdom of God, and what God has given to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight. Amen. And I see, Jeremy, I see you out there. Hey, Jeremy, can I steal you Sunday where you can come here Sunday and put in a little plug? Stand up, Jeremy. Now, Jeremy is the one that's going to be teaching our the new class on married on Wednesday night. And what is it going to be called? Married life. Well, how common is that? Married life. But it's good. Jeremy's going to be our teacher, and he is the founder of uh, uh, ABC Counseling. And uh, there's his sidekick, Ronnie, right there. Say hello, Ronnie McElroy. All right. Good deal. Y'all can be seated. And if you're not married, you ought to go anyway. And I'm willing to sow people out of this class. I don't care where you are as long as you're in the building. Amen. Getting fed the Word. All right. Now tonight we're going to look, we're really shifting gears here in the next three chapters. It may not feel or seem like it's relevant to you, but Israel is extremely relevant to you. Because guess what? Your attention this week has more than likely been diverted to Israel at one time or another. We know that Russia is supposed to be sending the radioactive fuel rods to Iran this week. And if they get those radioactive fuel rods into uh, their, whatchamacallit thingy? The reactor. See how scientific I am? Once they get in there, Israel can no longer bomb them and no longer stop them, and they'll have the, the missiles to lob towards Israel and towards us. And so Israel matters because the prophet predicted that in the last days Jerusalem would become the sore thumb of the entire world. And is it not that right now? The Israeli conflict right now, the sore thumb of the whole world. So Israel matters. So let's see what Paul, who was Jewish, of course, uh, has to say about it. Now, last time we saw that creation, Christians, and the Holy Spirit are doing what, everyone? They're groaning, awaiting the sons of God to come into their full inheritance. And we learn that once we are adopted as God's children, we then must become adapted for heaven. So God's in the process of adapting you right now. Since you have been adopted, you're being adapted, adapted for heaven. Now, we saw that we were also, here's the five big theological words, we were foreknown, we were predestined, we were called, justified, and glorified by God. Powerful stuff. If you missed last time, get the CD because it'll bless you. Now, Paul ended the incredible chapter 8 with this triumphant refrain. Read it with me because this is a great one and preach it to me. We are more, y'all aren't preaching, we are more, come on everybody. I know it's been a long day, but if you can't preach this, now come on, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's better. Still not as good as it could have been. A couple of you are staring at me. Don't stare, stir. 
Let's try it one more time. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. If you believe that, give the Lord a hand tonight. Now this time, we turn our attention to Israel. And we're going to see that chapters 9 through 11 are best read and reread as a single unit. 9, 10, and 11 is like one chapter on the subject of Israel. They begin with a lament that is so powerful. And they end with a doxology of praise. Now up to now, Paul has discussed the principles of the gospel in 1 through 8. But drawing together various threads that make up the tapestry picture of man's sin, salvation, and sanctification. In the next three chapters, he discusses not the principles of salvation, but the problems of the gospel. Particularly as these problems relate to the Jewish people. Because we're not Jew. Anybody in here a full-blooded Jew? Anybody? Not one of us. So we are all Gentiles grafted into the blessing that God brought to the Jewish people. Amen? So Paul says, uh, I believe in chapter 11, he says, don't boast because you're just grafted in. I mean, you're, you're in by the skin of your chinny-chin-chin, grafted in. Okay? So his problem with the Jewish people was that they had rejected the very Messiah God promised to give them. God had made many exceeding great promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, David, and Solomon. And many of these promises centered in the person of the Messiah that was to come. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was ironically murdered by the very Jews he was promised to. Now let that sink in. The ones who received the promise of a Redeemer are the very ones who didn't accept the promise when he showed up. And instead, not only did they reject him, but they murdered him. This causes the problem of the gospel where they're concerned. Now, John talks about this in John 1. He says, He, that is Jesus, came into the very world he created. Who created this world? Jesus did. Nothing was made but that it was made through him. All right? He came into the very world he spoke into existence, but the world didn't even recognize him. And he came to his own people, the Jew, and even they rejected him. In his love, God gave the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, a second chance, an opportunity to reverse their terrible verdict and by repentance and faith to accept Christ as Savior. But did they take advantage of that second chance? No. The book of Acts tells us all about that second chance, the history of which Paul himself plays a prominent part, records this second chance. The Jews even though the gospel was preached to them following the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, they did not accept it. They rejected the second chance and remained stubborn and hard-hearted. And this brought such woe to them, everybody, such woe, such pain through the centuries. If you want to know why, they have been persecuted through the centuries. Never have they had a place to lay their head that they were not persecuted. It's because they spoke a curse on themselves, I believe, when Jesus was standing before them and Pilate said, what shall I do 
with this man called Jesus. And they said, His blood be on us and on our children's children. Ooh. His blood be on us and our children's children. Well, I believe that just spoke something over all their descendants. Of course, the prophets had already predicted this would happen. But here we go. The Jews of the homeland, as well as the Jews of the diaspora, rejected him once again. All right, when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. It had not been brought down yet by the Romans. The sacrifices were still being offered, the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, though they were completely meaningless now because the ultimate sacrifice had come, which nullified all the Old Testament sacrifices of sheep and, and goats and bulls and all of that. That was all done away with when the Lamb of God hung on the cross. But they didn't accept it, so they kept on doing the Old Testament sacrifices and the Old Testament religion. The decimation of Jerusalem predicted by Jesus was yet on the distant horizon. It was waiting for 70 A.D. Yet Paul knew that Christianity was the end of the Judaism he had once served. He knew Christianity now replaced the Old Testament Judaism. But his brethren did not. That is, the Jewish people did not get it. As a Christian... Paul knew that he would have to come to terms with the problems of the gospel as they related to the Jew. What about all those ancient promises to the Jew? Were they canceled now in light of their rejection of Messiah? Uh, he, he wondered, where would the Jew now stand in relation to this new dispensation of grace? No honest explanation of the gospel could avoid these questions. This is why Paul wrote chapters 9 through 11. The great apostle We'll first look back at the past, and then at the present, and finally at the future. And that's how he's going to deal with it in 9, 10, and 11. Now he shows that in all of God's past, dealings with Israel is the sovereignty of God. And you know, we charismatics and a lot of Christians today have no concept of the sovereignty of God. We have been taught, many of us, that if, if you speak it, God jumps and does it. Now, I'm not making fun of anybody, but you know, the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. You say it, it's going to happen because you decree it with your tongue. Well, see, if you're not careful, that teaching completely overshadows the understanding of sovereignty. And what is sovereignty? God does what he wants to do. And you know, when you realize that, it brings such a peace to you because there, there's times you don't understand what God is doing. You don't get it. And you just have to say, Lord, I know I don't see what you see. I don't know what you know. Your ways are higher than mine. But I do trust your sovereignty. You're going to work it out. The providence of God is going to work it out. Uh, uh, I may not see it for a long time. I may never understand it this side of heaven. But the providence of God is going to work it out, and whatever he works out is going to be good, because shall not the judge of all the earth only do what is right? So when you trust the sovereignty of God, you've got to trust the character of God behind the sovereignty, that whatever he works out in your life, it's for your good. Now, and he's going to go into the key to all God's present dealings with Israel Present tense is the salvation. So in the past it was his sovereignty. 
In the present, it has to do with salvation. And the key to all God's promise dealings with Israel in the future is the sincerity of God. All right, so his sovereignty, very important, and then his salvation, and then his sincerity. Now, in Romans 9, we're going to see Paul carefully weigh God's past dealings with Israel. And we're going to find that all those dealings are based on the simple principle of divine sovereignty. History is his story. History is his story. How can you say that? Because he's sovereign. He's never checkmated by the devil. He's never defeated by the devil. In the chess game of life and eternity, God is always the one who finally says, checkmate. He is sovereign. Now first we're going to see something that's uh, really strong. Paul's anguish for the Jewish people. Look how strong it was. When Paul thought of his own people, the Jew, and their alienation from God, he felt an overwhelming grief. Home in on this with me. This is strong. Listen to what he says. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am in the presence of Christ, and with him looking right at me, I'm telling you something he knows is true. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Great sorrow and anguish that doesn't end in my heart. Wow. Keep in mind that it had been the Jews, as he went around preaching the gospel, keep this in mind, it was the Jews that beat him up, castigated him, imprisoned him, cursed him. Wherever he went, they stirred up the populace against him. And yet, is he walking around bitter? Is he walking around mad? Is he walking around unforgiving? Is he walking around with, with a chip on his shoulder towards the Jewish people? No. He loved them. The anguish he had for their soul never went away. Commentator John Phillips writes these words, quote, Such a love is not of nature. Now let me paraphrase that, not natural. A love like that is not natural. You beat me up, and you beat me up, and you beat me up, and you curse me, and you make my life hell on earth. I'm going to have a hard time feeling lovey-dovey towards you. But look what he says. He says, I not only love them, but I have such anguish for their soul it never lifts off of me. It is a supernatural love, and it's a result of the fruit of the Spirit in his life as described in Galatians 5.22. And his anguish is so profound that he says this. Now, are you ready? Mind blower. He says, quote, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Stop a minute and think. Is there anybody on this planet you could say that about? Especially people who are whooping up on you all the time. Could you turn around and say, not only do I not hold a grudge, but I love them so much that if I could go to hell in their place, I would. The word cursed, I could wish myself accursed, is the, taken from the word anathema, and it never denotes simply an exclusion or an excommunication. But it always 
means a devotion to perdition, a curse. Paul's soul-winning passion for men, especially his own countrymen, was such that he could actually soberly and truthfully in front of Christ say that he would be willing to go to hell and be eternally damned. If that were possible, if by so doing it would lead his kinsmen to a saving knowledge of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Can I tell you? I ain't going to hell for no one. You're going to have to move on me strong. I'm being honest. Closest thing you're going to get to it probably is your children or your spouse. But, I mean, folks, he said, I'm saying this in front of Christ. I would go to hell forever if my kinsmen could be saved. Now that's a soul-winning burden. What kind of a burden do we have for the lost in light of that? I mean, do we feel any anguish at all towards lost people when this man says in front of Christ Jesus, I would go to hell for eternity. If I could take the place of my brethren, I'd go in their stead. That's the spirit of Jesus Christ. I will die for you. That's the spirit of Jesus Christ. May God give us a tenth of such a burden. If he gave us a twentieth of such a burden, we turn this city upside down. Amen? Now next, in verses 4 and 5, Paul lists several advantages of the, of the Jews that made their rejection of Christ all the more tragic. Look at the advantages they had. He says, theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and all the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Because of the Jewish people, you have that Bible in your hands. And because of the Jewish people, you're saved. No wonder the devil has attacked them through the centuries. No wonder there was a Hitler that had such venom against them who was so demon-possessed that he hated them to the level that he did because through them came Messiah. He says, look at all of this. Who is God over all, forever praised, amen. Now look what it, he listed. They were, they were Israelites. They were adopted as sons. They experienced the glory of God when gen, the Gentile world did not. They were covenant partners with God. They had God's law. Moses came down from the mountain, his face shining in the dark, bringing them the word of God. They had the temple worship. Uh, let me go back. They had God's promises. They were descendants of the patriarchs. They were the people through whom the Messiah was given. Look at all the advantages they had because the Gentile world had none of that. Yet with all these advantages of God's special blessings throughout their history, the Jews did not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, and to this day they do not. As a whole, they do not. And I, I know some Jewish folks who I love with all of my heart, but there is a veil, there is a blindness. When you talk about Messiah Jesus, there is a veil, they cannot see it. They just don't see it yet. They will. And oh, what a day that's going to be. Now, here's what Paul wants to know. All right, 
since they had all these advantages, and yet they rejected the, the summation of all the promises, the person of Christ. They rejected the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of all those promises. Then did God's word fail? Were his promises rendered void? He says emphatically, no. Verse 6, he says, it is not as though God's word had failed. Because I'm going to tell you something, everybody, his word never fails. It says the word of the Lord will accomplish what it's sent out to do. All right? Now, God's word hadn't failed, although most of Israel had not believed in Jesus Christ. How could this be? Now, put on your thinking caps. This is a little bit uh, deep, but I want you to follow me. How could it be that since most of the Jewish people rejected him, how could it be then that his promises had not failed? Because there was an Israel within Israel. What do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? Here's what I mean. Watch this. Here is a principle. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. What does he mean by that? He goes on, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now when you see Isaac mentioned, it points to the principle of faith versus works. What was Ishmael? Ishmael was the result of them trying to bring to pass God's will in their own effort. So Abraham goes to Hagar. They have a child, Ishmael. And when Ishmael was born, before Isaac came along, what did Abraham do? He begged God to let Ishmael be the fulfillment of the promise. And God said, no, it will not be by your efforts, Abraham. It will be by faith. I'm going to wait till you're an old man. And your wife is going to be old. And when that child is conceived, it's going to be a miracle. Because my promise is in Isaac, the work of faith, not in Ishmael, the work of flesh. And you and I will always face the same decisions. Do we want to birth Ishmael's in our life? Where we try to bring to pass the Word of God and the will of God in our own energy and wit and genius and intelligence and will? Or are we going to receive from God by faith what He has promised are we going to go for Isaac's or are we going to go for Ishmael's? It's choice is yours. How many of you have ever brought about an Ishmael? Let me see. The rest of you just don't know it yet. But anytime you said, I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to bring this to pass in my own strength, I'm going to make this happen, I'm sick of waiting on God and you step out and you take matters into your own hands and you get what you wanted but later you don't want what you got because you got an Ishmael and Ishmael Ishmael always turns around and bites Isaac thus we see Isaac and Ishmael fighting in the front yard later and Sarah says the woman of the house Ishmael the work of the flesh has got to go because there's not room in this house for the work of the flesh and the work of the spirit it's gonna be one or the other 
And it's the same with you and me in your house. Now, against all hope, it says, Abraham, in hope, believed. And so became the father of many nations. What did he do? He believed. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, let me ask you a question. When he went into Hagar and they produced a child, was he believing God? No. He had given up. He said, God, I don't know where God is. He's taking too long. I'm sick of waiting. Some of you are doing that tonight. You might be on the verge of birthing an Ishmael in your own life. You say, where is God? I don't see God. I'm sick of waiting. But then when he learned his lesson, it says, against all hope, as an old man, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his what? Faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as what? Dead. Since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Their reproductive ability was dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And one night, he said, Sarah, come here. And the sparks flew in that tent one more time. And listen, Isaac was conceived. 190. I mean, I want to give him a hand, amen? I mean, hey, that's a testimony. But what was it? It was faith. Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I mean... Don't look at me so holy. You go to all those Hollywood movies, this is nothing to you. It, 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 you know, it was by faith. And so now, watch this. God's promises had not been for every Jew of Abrahamic descent. That's the deal. His promise was not to every single Jew of Abrahamic descent. But his promises were made for those Jews who placed faith in Messiah. So you have an Israel within Israel. You have the natural descendants of Abraham, and then you have those who have turned to Christ by faith. So you've got the natural descendants, and then you've got the spiritual descendants. It's an Israel within Israel. So Paul elaborates by saying, in other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Who are the children of the promise? Those who turn to him by faith. Hey, Jesus looked at natural descendants of Abraham and called them children of the devil. I'm not saying all that about all Jewish people. I'm just quoting. I'm just saying he looked at those Pharisees and said, you are children of the devil and his lusts you will do. And they said, we are Abraham's descendants. What Jesus was saying is, yeah, but you haven't been born again yet. So you might be a natural descendant, but the promise was made to the spiritual descendants. For this was how the promise was stated, quote, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. And that was the promise. Didn't say Hagar would have a son. Said who would have a son? Sarah. 
So there is an Israel within Israel. There is natural Israel, which are natural descendants of Abraham, but have not yet embraced Messiah. Therefore, they are not yet spiritually God's children. And there is spiritual Israel, those that have turned to God in faith by embracing Messiah Jesus. And guess what? You are a part of spiritual Israel because you as Gentiles have been grafted in to that Jewish vine. So spiritually, you're Jewish. Pastor, I don't receive that. I'm, I'm a Fort Worth Gentile. No. <laughs> you're a, you are a spiritual child of God and you've been grafted into the vine. Hallelujah. So we ought to be all the time going, thank you, thank you, thank you, because the original promise went to the Jews, not us. So God's promises to the Jew had not failed. They were fulfilled for every Jew that placed his or her faith in Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now Paul continues, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father. Now here we get into a tough one. Remember Rebekah, she had twins. Who were they? Jacob and Esau. Now Paul goes on. This is a quote out of Romans. He says, not only that, but Rebekah... Isaac's wife, her children, or she had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Rebecca's children had one and the same father, Isaac. So here's two children, twins, in, this, in Rebecca, their daddy is Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, so they couldn't be judged by their life in order that God's purpose in election, election might stand not by works, but by him who calls, God who calls people. Rebecca was told the older is going to serve the younger. So the firstborn is going to serve the secondborn. It's not the way it usually works. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now I know you're having a problem with that, and I used to too. Because why would God hate anybody? The word there actually means prefer. My call. I am electing, choosing Jacob to lead Esau. I'm choosing Jacob for the work. Now, in these difficult passages, Paul describes God's choice of Jacob over Esau. Both sons had the same father and mother. Rebekah conceived both by Isaac, and God chose Jacob, the younger twin, rather than Esau, before they were even born. God chose them. God spoke over them. Now, this was done so that the selection could not have been based on their doing right or wrong or any other natural factor. The wisdom of God is what chose Jacob and rejected Esau. And going back a bit, it was God's wisdom that chose Isaac and rejected Ishmael. So you got God saying, I choose this one and I don't choose that one to be the recipient of my promise. In both cases, the fathers, Abraham and Isaac, pleaded with God to accept the rejected one. Abraham said, please let Ishmael stand in your sight. God said, no. The chosen one, the one of promise, is going to come from Sarah. And now you've got 
Mama, Rebecca, doing all kinds of manipulative things to try to get Esau in the lead. And yet God had chosen Jacob, no matter what the parents were saying. Now watch this. You can see God's wisdom if you look at the outworking of history. From Ishmael have come the Arab nations, bitter foes of Israel to this day, and for long centuries, passionate embracers of Islam, rejectors of Messiah as a race. From Esau came Edom. Read about the Edomites, bad dudes. The bitterest and most vengeful of all Israel's ancient neighbors were the Edomites, the descendants of Edom, or Esau. As time passed, both Ishmael and Esau personally manifested hostility to the things of God, whereas Isaac and Jacob were the opposite. But God's choice of the two was also based on, here we go, ready? Say it with me, His sovereign will. God chooses who He wants to. God put in you whatever gift he wanted to. You can't look up, well, I'm going ahead of myself. So let's go on here. Are you ready for this? 21st century modern people, listen to this. God is under no obligation to explain anything to man. Well, I don't understand. You better explain it to me. God says, say what? I don't have to explain anything to you. Who are you? Can you imagine an ant on the ground looking up at you and saying, you better explain to me why you're about ready to step on me. You say, say what, little ant? Now, I don't kill ants, but some of you do. Or you swat that fly with a fly swatter. Does he say when that fly swatter is coming towards him, how dare you swat me? Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? What's your attitude toward him? I'm bigger than you, and I've got the fly swatter. In other words, God does what he pleases, and he doesn't owe us anything. Are you ready for that? I mean, isn't that, that's revolutionary. Now, Paul says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy. Kind of puts you in your place, Romans 9. Romans 9 will put you in your place as a human being, as it relates to God. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, look what he says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, I'm using you to show my glory to my people. I'm using your stubborn heart so I can show them all these miracles. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. I know what you're thinking. Now, Pastor, are you preaching that some are born to be saved and some born to be lost? No. Follow me. This is deep stuff, Romans 9. Watch carefully. We can get it. God showed mercy to Moses and Israel, but he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Paul attributes both the bestowal of mercy 
and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to God's sovereign will. Many say, but that's not fair. And here's the way they reason. And I can understand this reasoning. If God's the one that hardened his heart, then how could he resist God? He had to do what God was telling him to do. But on closer inspection of the many times we're told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, get ready for this. Most of those times are attributed to Pharaoh himself. He hardened his own heart. Read your Bible carefully. It is only when still resisting God stubbornly after the sixth of ten plagues do we read for the first time in the Hebrew language that the Lord made firm the heart of Pharaoh. The first time God hardened Pharaoh's heart was way into the miracles. Up to that point, he'd been hardening his own heart, being stiff-necked himself, resisting God himself, being evil all on his own. So what are we saying? God looked and said, if that dude lived to be a thousand, he'd still be wicked. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use his wickedness to show my glory to my people. You have to understand this, church. God knows everybody. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows us inside out. He looked at Pharaoh and said, that dude right there, if I left him alone for a million years, he would still be stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious, hate me, hate everything holy. He would still be Pharaoh. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to extend this out a little bit longer so I can show all these plagues, these miracles of deliverance to my people. Because no matter what he does, he is going to remain lost. He's never going to turn. Let me ask you a question. Does God know who's going to turn and who isn't? Does God make somebody not turn? No. He just knows who's going to turn and who isn't. That's why I tell you all the time, when you came to the Lord, He did not say, oh, well, I'll be. He knew you were coming all the time. He knew the day, the hour, the moment. He knew. But He also looks at some people and says, they're never going to turn. I know they're not ever going to turn. If He didn't know that, He's not God. Who knows the end from the beginning. So, up to the sixth plague it says pharaoh made heavy his heart the first time you read that pharaoh did this was it the sixth plague or that god did this to pharaoh pharaoh or pharaoh made heavy his own heart that's the way the original hebrew reads i'm getting a little ahead of myself pharaoh made heavy his own heart and here's what paul anticipates our response he says one of you will say to me then why does god still blame us for who can resist his will paul is saying you a mere man skewed in your judgment by sin are not wise enough to question God and secondly such a question ignores the fact that God's actions are always born of righteousness and always tempered with mercy so up until the sixth plague Pharaoh made heavy his own heart Paul asks who are you old man to talk back to God Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? You ever looked in the mirror and said that to God? Why did you make me like this? 
Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Can God do that? What would you do if you were shaping a lump of clay on a potter's wheel and it started talking to you? What are you doing? What do you think you're making me? You would say, shut up. I'll do what I want with you. Now God says, and this is really, this, this just shatters modern secularism. Because here's Pharaoh resisting God, resisting God, resisting God, resisting God, resisting God, resisting God. Finally, at the sixth plague, God says, okay, up to now you've made heavy your own heart. I'm going to extend it out a little bit because you're never going to turn anyway. And I'm going to show my glory to my people. God says, I can do that if I want. And it's righteous when I do it. As the potter is sovereign over the clay to do with it as he pleases, so is God over men. What if God, he goes on to say, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepare for destruction? And that's what he did with Pharaoh. He bore with great patience those who were under his wrath. What if he did this, Paul goes on to say, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Are you ready, church? God uses wicked people. I have trouble with that but he does. They don't go any further than he lets them. That's what he's telling us here about Pharaoh. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. The Proverbs say, as the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. Paul is now concluding his whole argument by stressing the fact that the Gentiles are as much an object of God's mercy as are the Jews. The salvation of us Gentiles was never just an afterthought with God. It was a forethought. The Word of God predicted very clearly the ultimate blessing of God in a great Gentile revival. Look what he says in Hosea. Quote, I will call them my people who are not my people. That's you. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, that's you. He says, I will call them my people who are not my people. They're not Jews. They're not Semitic people, but I'm going to call them. And I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. You're God's loved one. Amen. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. And that's you. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have been like Sodom and ended up like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, the Gentiles didn't have the word of God like they did through Moses. They were not trying to live by the law. They didn't know it. They were not pursuing that kind of righteousness. But they obtained righteousness, a righteousness that is by 
faith. God's saying, here's my Jewish people. They're doing everything they can to be righteous through the law, but they won't re receive my Messiah. So I'm just going to turn to the Gentiles. And I'm going to use their hard hearts to bring my favor on the Gentiles. Because they don't receive me, I'm going to go elsewhere. If he comes knocking on your door and you don't answer it, he goes down the street. So you got saved because the Jewish people rejected him. Quiet in here tonight. I know this is kind of deep, but you know what? It's powerful. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness by trying to obey the law, they didn't attain righteousness. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If you have trusted in Jesus, you're never going to be put to shame. Okay? We're done. Stand up with me, would you? So watch this. Here's old Pharaoh. He says, I'm going to harden my heart. I'm not going to turn. Moses turns the staff into a serpent. His magicians turn theirs into a serpent, but Moses' serpent swallows their serpent. But Pharaoh says, I'm hardening my heart. Then comes six plagues. He says, I'm hardening my heart. God says, very well, I'm just going to extend it out. And while I'm extending out your hardness of heart, I'm going to pour out miracles on my people so they can believe in my power. Now later comes the Jew. He sends his son. They harden their heart. God says, very well, I'm going to use their hardness of heart to turn towards the Gentiles. And there was a great Gentile revival. And guess what? times of the Gentiles is almost finished. You're saved because the Jewish people harden their heart. But the day is going to come when they come in a great revival to their Messiah. Every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. Amen? Let's just thank God for his mercy and his sovereignty. Lord, thank you. You're never checkmated by the enemy. You always win. And Lord, because the Jewish people, for this time period, hardened their hearts, you turned to us Gentiles. And we were grafted in. And Lord, thank you for grafting us in. Thank you, Lord, for turning to us and offering the gospel to us in Jesus' name. Can you just lift your hands and thank the Lord that he turned to you in his mercy and his sovereignty, and he called you. And you are now reaping the benefits of his promise to the Jewish people. Glory to God. His ways are inscrutable. Who can know them? He does what he pleases. Thank you, Lord God. Lord, I'm amazed. Let's lift it. Let's sing it to him now. Thank you, Lord. Lord.